ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, welcome to the minefields. It's uh, wonderful to have you company. Just trying to think of how I could tie the topic to the introduction. There was no way to do it without it turning into something very self-congratulatory <laughs> like, we know how much you love this show. Because we don't actually know that. We There's don't. every chance you don't. We do try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. You'll begin to understand that segue I decided not to make quite soon. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Hey, Scott. Hey, Waleed. So there's some times when we start mm. the show, and I just have this immediate vision of you in like a smoking jacket. <laughs> really? <laughs> Lounging back in this impossibly plush chair, feet up. I don't Where know. is this chair at the ABC, well, by the way? I don't know, but, you know, sort of slightly dimly lit. You'll have, actually, you'll have a, not quite a delicate, but not an overly chunky cup of, it wouldn't be Earl Grey. You're not Earl Grey. No, that's more Susan. Okay, Melbourne breakfast. Yeah, any breakfast. Yeah, but yeah. Melbourne breakfast is pretty good. It is pretty good. Anyway, uh, it just felt like you Why are we talking about tea? Well, no, no, it just felt like you were relaxing into the program. Hello. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> okay. Welcome to Waleed's Den of Earthly Delights. Jeez, <laughs> oh, that's a very <laughs> different show. It is. Yeah. So we're talking. Can I just say, this is one of those eat your vegetables, it's good for you shows. But if those vegetables were impeccably, lovingly curated by someone who isn't just trying to get nutrition into you, but really wants you to enjoy the process. This is one of those care for your soul shows. Am I, am I able to say that? Because I really think it is. Yeah. So this is a show about criticism, but it's also not a show about criticism. I mean, something that you and I have talked about, Waleed, on and off over you, something we've written about actually, is our critical times, just how easy it is to find fault, how congratulated we are for finding fault and expressing that fault forcibly. I think how much easier it is to make your case for why something's bad, as if something being bad requires no justification. But it's really difficult to say why it is you love something. It's almost as if being caught out loving something too much is a sign that you've fallen into a trap. You're credulous. Whereas finding fault with something noting its shortcomings, its blind spots, the fact that it's not as good as what came before and it's not as good as what comes after, that then becomes almost self-unpacking. And I think it's also no wonder that the language that we swim in, the language that we're surrounded by, the ubiquitous language of digitally mediated cultures, really is the language of criticism. I was noticing this when I was, I, I don't actually read a lot of news and I don't go on to a lot of news sites, but I, there's one that I tend to consult. And it just struck me. There was one particular story in response to a conciliatory gesture that a public figure had made. And the title of the op-ed was effectively, it's just not good enough. And this isn't, I'm not evaluating the moral rightness or wrongness of the piece or the sincerity or otherwise of the apology. But I think there's something about the it's not good enough. It's never good enough. It fell short. It doesn't honor the victims. It doesn't honor the whomever it might be. And I think there's something about the fact that critical language has become easy to us. And I wonder, okay, so can I use a little analogy here that may or may not help anybody, but it helps me. So one of the plays of Shakespeare that I love most and feel tensest about is Shakespeare's Othello. There's no agent in that play more assertive, more powerful than Iago. Iago's the one, I mean, he's a mesmerizing, even though he's an asexual, he's almost an erotic figure in the sense that the audience is never quite permitted to look away from him. He addresses the audience more than any other character other than Richard III. Uh, the audience is drawn into Iago's life world. Uh, we find that characters from 
Rodrigo to Othello to Cassio, they end up mimicking in really uncomfortable ways Iago. Even Brabantio, the father of Desdemona at the beginning of the play, he ends up mimicking almost proleptically, preemptively, Iago. It's almost like Iago is the only person with something to say, and everyone else's language is starved and impoverished. He ends up almost puppeting everybody else. Um, In 2007, one of my most loved authors, Toni Morrison, wrote a sequel of sorts to a Peter Sellers production of Othello, which can be a topic of another show. And she wrote it on Desdemona. It's Desdemona and Amelia, who is Iago's wife, who dies. Desdemona, who of course dies. Barbary, who is Desdemona's uh, nursemaid, who also dies while singing a particular song that Desdemona sings towards the very end. They're all victims in various ways of these horrible men in their lives. And the play that Toni Morrison creates is of these characters, these lost souls, if you like, in a kind of afterlife. And the crucial moment comes with Desdemona conferring forgiveness on Othello, who kills her in a fit of jealousy at the end of the play. And what was so fascinating to me, Willie, is Toni Morrison saying the only way that I could hear the goodness in the speech of these characters The only way their relationships could be knitted together and they could recognize the beauty in one another, despite the horrible things that they had done. The only way I could write this, she said, was by deleting Iago. He just had to be nowhere. And it just strikes me, Waleed, it's almost as if our climate, our communicative environment is so dominated by our capacity to say what it is we hate, to criticize what it is we find falling short, that it's almost as if, like Iago does, it's taken out of us the ability, the necessary fluency, the eloquence to be able to describe what it is that we love, why it is we love it, and why what we love is worthy of that love. If I can just put it in a slightly different way, we've become so terrified of false praise, praising things when they're not worthy of praise. I think here of what Elizabeth Anscombe charged Oxford University with doing of Harry Truman, (laughs) flattering him, flattering him over false and uh, reprehensible deeds and therefore joining in his guilt. We're so scared, I think, of false praise or what could be called idolatry. Um, praising something that's not worthy of that, that we've almost lost the capacity to praise. We don't know what it feels like, what it sounds like to love something fully and to be able to give voice to why it is we love that thing fully. What happens to a culture when it loses the ability, when it loses the habits of being able to praise, of being able to acknowledge what is worthy of our affection, our love, and therefore loses the ability, the eloquence, the necessary words needed to describe what it is that's worthy of praise and why our lives uh, worthily give our assent, our gratitude for it. What do you think? I don't know that I would approach this as a function of language in the way that I think is implied in the It's not all language. It's not all language, no. Yeah, I would reverse it. I think it one follows from the other. So I think what you're describing is real. At the same time are there, as there are important exceptions to that that don't actually go against what you're saying so much as affirm it yeah. in a weird sort of a way. So mm. I, I realise nothing I've said there will make any sense until I flesh it out. But I look at it this way. No, I'm going to start somewhere else. Gossip. Wow. Why is gossip attractive? Mm. What I mean by attractive is why do we like doing it? And I think in the end we like doing it because it raises our esteem relative to the person about whom we're gossiping. So I get to say someone is bad, and here I'm talking about a backbiting sort of scenario, right? Mm. You and I are talking and we start talking about someone else and 
we bond over how much we don't like them or something that they've done and we share some scandalous news about them. Two things are going on. One is we're trying to lower the estimation of that person in the eyes of whoever we're talking to. But the other thing is we're raising our own estimation in their eyes because it, there's something relative about that That's estimation. Right. Exactly. Right? And by condemning X, I say, well, I'm not X, therefore I'm not condemned. I that, that's that. gossip in the service of vanity, I think, quite quite crucially. Yeah, I suppose it depends how you want to define vanity, but yeah, hmm. yeah, I, I can go along with that. So I think that's a spiritual disease. Hmm. I agree. When you build a culture on the same logic, that is the idea that we will effectively build it through the tearing down of others and other things. I think the same mechanism happens, right? So what happens is by doing that, I esteem myself. I, if I, if there's this film that people seem to like, if I can point out all the ways in which it's problematic, all the ways in which it's actually to be condemned, all the ways in which liking it is naive or, or retrograde, then what I'm, what goes along with that is an impression of myself that I'm trying to create as someone who's above all that. Mm. I'm not naive. I, I am savvy. I, you know, And maybe that's the word that best connects with our culture of endless criticism is savviness. Mm. That's right. Because that's kind of the last virtue. The problem I have with it, apart from uh, that I think that's a lower order way of going about life, the problem I have with that is in the end, that is either the product of or it precipitates, and I'm not sure which direction the cause and effect goes here, a culture that is incapable of affirmation. Mm. So you're talking about incapable, it doesn't have a language of love. I, I would talk more about affirmation mm. because love follows affirmation, but affirmation is only possible when you're prepared to say, these are things we hold true. Not preferable or not minimizing harm or no, this is this is what we sign up to and the problem with affirmation is when you as soon, as soon as you affirm you invite deconstruction so we have a, a culture of perpetual deconstruction affirmation becomes impossible and affirmation becomes impossible once affirmation becomes impossible you no longer really have a culture to speak of because and the, and this is the bit where you might disagree. I don't I don't know, but this is the this is the claim that I'm making. Mm. No culture worthy of the name is built on something other than affirmation. We have to affirm something if we're to have a culture, at least a culture that we want to that's worth celebrating and preserving. And I don't think it's going too far to say this is one of the great crises of. Perhaps it's just the modern world, but certainly in the modern West, is it is caught so relentlessly in a cycle of deconstruction. But I think that, yeah, maybe the cause and effect does go this way. That follows from the West over time abandoning its sense of affirmation. It's kind of in a way inherent in the creation of liberal society I know you can argue liberalism is an affirmation of sorts, but what I mean by that is as our societies have become more diverse and complex and so on, we've decided really the only response we can have to that is to affirm nothing. So to say that we're not going to enter into any controversies of contested affirmations, mm. we'll put all that to one side and figure out if we can go along just pursuing something like the harm principle, don't harm others. That's that's about all we can affirm. And so you lose this ability to affirm and what you end up with is a culture that is entirely up for grabs and must necessarily devolve into a series of subcultures, really contested subcultures. Over time, that becomes an affectation, right? It becomes the way you go about doing things. So we shouldn't be surprised that it turns up in all aspects of life, whether it be our approach to otherwise trivial things like entertainment or sport or 
whatever, and of course into politics. Right? Because the imperatives are such that if there is something you regard as imperfect, that's the thing to highlight rather than everything else that might be good. And you can't, it becomes very difficult in that circumstance really to propose an alternative because there are no brownie points for doing so. And the moment you do so, you're immediately subject to the same process of deconstruction. Mm. The only exception I can think to this... Oh, there's the a paradox here, by the way. Just, I'm not going to... Yeah, go on. Well, I was going to say the paradox here is that a society without affirmation ends up mandating its own forms of assent, its own forms of yeah. affirmation and obedience, so, but without the intermediary steps. So, so, for instance, I mean, what would you call some of the forms of what's often been called kind of illiberal political demands, things that require only obedience, only only assent in any time. I mean, we've seen this at the various uh, wages of more recent, say, social justice or gender equality movements. There was a point at which things like Me Too, things like Black Lives Matter, uh, made particular demands and engaged certain critical gestures that I think undercut some fairly fundamental moral principles, such as... Such or, or institutional goods. Or institutional right? goods, thank you. That's probably so, a nice so, way and you Like the presumption of innocence, for instance. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so the whole justice system becomes deconstructed as something rotten. No alternative justice system can really be proposed. And the idea that the minute you tried to propose an alternative one, you would very, very likely end up in a series, like in a situation of mass injustice is simply not engaged with. Yes. Because the game never gets to that point. That, that That's right. But doesn't that point out that, I mean, what you've called affirmation, what I've called praise, these things require, I think, a few intermediary steps or intermediary habits. And one of them is, and, and here maybe move, let me move a little bit back towards the idea of language. Because, I mean, you're, you're right. It's not all language. But I think language becomes one of the ways in which we engage with the world that then has that feedback loop. The way that, the words that we use to describe the world end up shaping the way that we see the world. This is one of Iris Murdoch's crucial points. The language we use changes the world that we perceive so that we end up seeing the world either as a stingy, uh, um, a hard-hearted, a contemptuous person that shrinks the world, that shrivels the world, that makes hard surfaces where there should be things that are soft, or practices of attentiveness end up opening up the world, creating an expectation of depth, the possibility of reconciliation, of forgiveness, even things like grace that maybe wouldn't have been there had I seen the world differently. So I don't think it's completely linguistic, but it's not completely separated out from the language we use either. It just strikes well, no, me. I, I, all I'm arguing is that one. The, the language, I think, tends to follow. Yes, So, So the right. thing about affirmation is that a language usually comes along with us. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So what are things that affirm? I mean, the, the, the most obvious example is religion, right? Religion but this begins. is why, Willie, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. There's a language that goes along with it. I, I don't mean to be preempting what you're saying, but there's also a, a silence that goes along with that. There's the hesitation before the language is engaged that I think is crucial here. And it's that silence before the language is engaged, that then becomes the place of assent. That then becomes the place of possible affirmation rather than mere obedience, rather than mere enlistment. Anyway, I, I interrupted you. Could you make your point? And then no, I, no, I no. Wanna... Actually, you've delivered me really well. To the, okay. You've made it better than I could have, which is the paradox of this, yeah. which is we also see moments of heightened celebration. Yes, that's right. I don't know that they're quite affirmation. <laughs> no, but it is praise. It is praise. It's praise. Yes. I think what it tends to be, though, so if you think about it in the political context, this would be, I don't know, um, some kind of highly celebrated takedown going viral or something. Mm -hmm. Very often it's the celebration of a deconstruction. Mm. So what's being affirmed is not necessarily something essential or ultimate. Mm, that's right. That's right. It's something that is a step or two removed from that, something mm. penultimate and deconstructive. Mm. That's the thing we're most comfortable celebrating with every now and again odd exceptions. So, have, for example, in this context, what would you make of the wall-to-wall 
praise and inspiration surrounding the Matildas run in the World Cup recently? This is inevitable. I knew this was going to come up. As soon as I said the word praise, I knew this is where it was going to go. Yeah. So what what are you calling that? Is that is that affirmation of something? Is that I mean, it's certainly endless praise. One of the things that's really interesting to me about that is the response you get from the general public yeah. talking about something like the Matildas is very different to the response you would get if you talk to like football hardheads about it. That's right. Right? And you've even seen uh, one or two of those sort of pieces turn up, you know, but they tend to be almost apologetically offered <laughs> and they tend to be in the weeds of football, right? So... Well, you know, it's ultimately a limited team with these, you know, and they came up against teams that were much better on the ball, would control possession more. The soccer is, sorry, not the soccer is, how could I say that? The Matildas play counterattack. They do that because of the limitations. Uh, the run is kind of an overperformance. A different draw would have led them to it. You get into that sort of argument. Or, right? or and, and, and the other side of it is, oh, the celebration is all well and good. Even the Prime Minister flooding the possibility of a public holiday is all well and good. But what we really need now is funding. What we really right. so which is so true, there's certain kinds is, of praise have to be deconstructed. That's right. Yeah, but apart from the, those bits, were the things that hung on to the phenomenon. But the broader phenomenon was one of praise, wasn't mm. it? it? It was. So what was it that made that possible? If what we're saying is it's a culture that lacks an ability to affirm. Yeah, it's so interesting. What do you have an answer to that? I have a few suspicions. Okay. Um, suspicion number one. I mean, the very fact that it was, I mean, can I say soccer so there's no confusion about what we're talking about? Sure. Okay. I mean, the very fact that it was soccer, the game of immigrants, the game of, what was the name of, um, there's a famous biography that characterized the prevailing Australian attitude towards soccer. One of the reasons that soccer could never, ever, ever be an official, a hegemonic sport because it didn't have the requisite ties to empire, because it didn't build up the necessary virtues of hardihood and manliness, because it was insufficiently contact-based and therefore didn't produce forms of toughness. It's something that Wogs played. It's something that Sheila's played. It's something, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so the very fact that it was something that was outside of... Uh, Sorry, and Sheila's, by the way, doesn't actually mean women. No, no, no. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the whole and point. And that's unfortunately precisely the point. So the yeah. very fact that, I mean, the eruption of praise for the Matildas, it really does come not from the institutions, but from the grassroots. It is the closest mm. thing to a kind of grassroots celebration. Uh, and and I, I should say the fact that it's the women's team and not the men's team. I think there was something there that meant that the success that came, even though it wasn't final success, the success that did come was so much against everything else going against it. It was so much against the backdrop of both adversity and improbability. And it was off the back of so many decades of insult and neglect that it meant that when it did erupt, it was a kind of pure celebration, not of jingoism, not of chest-beating nationalism, but what, Waleed? I think there was a national pride. There was a national pride, but it wasn't, it was a different kind of national pride. It was... Do you know what it was? It was, an, it was the same sort of national pride that erupted in the UK during the London Olympics. I think. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's probably right. Yeah, there was something sort of celebratory about it. And the fact that it was a women's team allowed it to proceed under a banner of inclusion that perhaps a men's team That's couldn't. right. And there was that something said, essential. There was something essential that was being expressed here and not just incidental, not just accidental. What do you mean by that? There was something essential about Australian identity, about modern Australian identity, a nation of, of immigrants, not just of British yeah, men. Yeah, except I've got to say, I, I think the immigrant claim is far stronger with the Socceroos than with the Matildas. Yeah, that's right. The, the Matildas seem... Just at first blush, I, I haven't looked in the background of all the players, but when you look at the Socceroos and you see, you know, African kids running around in it and so on, you get confronted with a multicultural image mm, far more than true. when you look at the Matildas. Uh, you know, if the, if the Socceroos had made a semi-final in a World Cup on home soil, I suspect you would have seen a similar possibly um, response, maybe even a bigger one. I don't know. Anyway, Can I but make, what is interesting oh, yeah. about this? Before we, I, I didn't mean to turn this into an episode about that. What's not, so notable to me? was how rare that was. Hmm. 
So in other words, for us to find something to celebrate, it had to be the rarest of things. It was a World Cup on home soil. This has never happened before. It was the Matildas getting to a stage that we've never seen before. It was all of that, right? In other words, let this one for, for mine be the exception that proves the rule because what that's doing is showing how absent points or notes of affirmation really are in our day-to-day lives. Mm-hmm. And it, in a way it was interesting that it had to be sport, something that doesn't really rest on a deeper affirmation of something. The scoreboard of, tells you an objective truth and you more or less, you submit to it or you don't pay interest. But you, no one looks at the scoreboard and says, well, that's relative, isn't it? Mm. I mean, that just, that, that's not There's really There is no justice claim, that's right. Yeah, well, there can be, but there yeah, only be. a light one, right? So in other words, it took us to, it, it has to be a realm that takes us out of deep affirmation before we can have a moment of celebration and that's why I'm not sure it was a moment of celebration, but was it a moment of affirmation? I'm not mm, entirely mm. sure. But either way, we circle this idea of affirmation being something we don't do. Not only that we just don't happen to do it, but something that I think we're culturally hostile to. Because it comes, it ends up becoming uncomfortably close in our public imagination to things like dogma. That's right. Affirmation is what backwards people do. <laughs> In a sort of weird sense. But let me just, let me add one last note, and I really want to bring in our guest. I think, I mean, I've completely adopted your language of affirmation. Because I think in the way that you're using it, something that we assent to, or even what you might say, ascend to. Something that we regard as being worthy of the attention and the praise that we're giving. It's something that we all rise towards together. And in rising towards it, we thereby become closer as fellow affirmers of this common thing. So I'm, 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 I'm completely there. I'm there. But what prevents it from being mere obedience? Or what prevents it from being mere conformity? I think this is what's crucial to me. What prevents that is I think what can only be referred to as attentiveness. And attentiveness then becomes the, and and this is where I think the Matilda's example, maybe it holds, maybe it doesn't. I think the people who really celebrated were those who have been following through the troughs, through the valleys, through the proximate hills, and then the relative mountains. Only sort of. I think what distinguished it was the number of people who had never paid it, they'd never even watched sport before. Yeah, yeah. And that's what made it a phenomenon. But I cannot believe that, as to use the term that my mum my used to use, that the Johnny-come-latelys celebrated as passionately at the level of their souls as did those who have been following for a long time. No, but the ones who followed more closely were also the ones who were more ready to criticize. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. Possibly. Well, anyway. Well, they, they published things about it. Okay. I don't think we can say that as a general principle. Let me just make the quick point about attentiveness. Attentiveness means, I mean, obedience is this thing is said and I'm obliged to assent to it. I'm obliged to affirm it. Attentiveness means I'm going to stay silent before this thing because I don't know what it means yet. There's something here that attracts me. I don't know what it is yet. I think, for instance, about when Zadie Smith describes hating Joni Mitchell and then listening to Blue in the car with her husband, and then suddenly loving her. There's something that she loved, but she didn't have the words for it yet. And Mm -hmm. so set about to write a piece to describe that process of conversion. One of the things that I think we are compelled to do is to rush to interpretation in the face of things. There might be a movie you love, but immediately other people leap on and interpret it as to why this is partaking in injustice or historical erasure or bigotry or whatever. So we rush to interpretation because we don't like, and I think we become unskilled at the practice of attentiveness, which is lingering in front of something that is proximately beautiful, but we don't have the words for it yet. If I can just give the simplest, quickest of of, of examples— there was a, a very well-known book by Michael Rogan called Black Face, White Noise, which was kind of a, 
an analysis of American culture and white appropriation of black culture and the way that white appropriations of black culture bore with them a kind of erasure uh, of black identity, but also a subservience of black people uh, and black cultures within America, like kind of a commodification, if you like. And there's a passage where he analyzes, where Michael Rogan analyzes uh, Fred Astaire's 1953 film, The Bandwagon, where one kind of glorious point, I'm, I'm not one for musicals, much less saints, uh, song and dance man movies. This kind of glorious scene where Fred Astaire is in an arcade and uh, a shoeshine man, which is already kind of racially overdetermined <laughs> function. It's already kind of problematic. But there's this remarkable dance scene surrounding with, between Fred Astaire and the shoeshine man, which Michael Rogan characterizes as a kind of a gesturing, a performance of white domination of black. But it's very difficult to pay attention to the particular scene in the film and, and not to see the eruption through a practice of mutual attentiveness of something like genuine fraternity, a kind of mutual adoration, a praising of one another that's then capped off by the two men walking out. This is in 1953, the two men, a white and a black, walking out of this arcade arm in arm into a kind of a gaudy, overdetermined, already segregated American city. In other words, there's a way of interpreting what goes on that gets straight, if you like, to the political content, but misses all of the salient details that ought to invite us to, and, and I, I think the best example here is what Stanley Cavell does with this Fred Astaire movie, that invites us to praise, that invites a kind of the eruption of an opportunity, the eruption of a moral relationship, mutual recognition, beauty, serendipity, vicariousness, but then rushing immediately to a political interpretation. This is just about white domination over black culture. The only way that you can get there is by going past the appearances, by forgetting all of the salient details that invite your attention, and by getting straight to, quote-unquote, the meaning when I first read that in Michael Rogan's book, I couldn't help but recall Susan Sontag's great critique of interpretation, that interpretation trains us not to see more, not to hear more, not to feel more, but rather to get straight to the meaning of things, but only by bypassing everything that ought to uh, create our conditions of assent, that ought to capture us with their beauty and possible meanings. So I think it's that practice of attentiveness, lingering before something that is worthy, that is beautiful, and trying to pay attention to the salient particularities, the details, rather than going straight to, well, of course, this is just part of the system of oppression. I'm not saying that those kind of moral and political analyses are always inappropriate. I don't think they are always inappropriate. I think they're an essential part of what we do because there's been an awful lot of injustice that has been smuggled in. Mm -hmm. But they render visible at the same time as they render invisible. That's right. That's exactly yep. right. We have a guest. And our guest is a kind of perfect person to help us talk about attentiveness, love, beauty, affirmation. Jamie Parr is a philosopher, a writer, the author of a forthcoming book called Nietzsche and Pascal, Transfiguration, Despair, and the Problem of Existence. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us once again after four years, I think it's been, since you last were with us on The Minefield. That's right. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, one of the, I think, the most important words that neither uh, Waleed or yourself, Scott, have actually used yet is uh, worship. And I'm that's close to the idea of praise, though praising something that's worthy. Depends on what you mean by praise. Of course, it, it, it depends <laughs> on it depends on what you mean by praising. That that also actually links to the, the problem I have with uh, Walid's. I think it was Walid's suggestion about affirmation, because affirmation is not is not, at least as I understand it, is not simply the affirmation of all that is good. Uh, the kind of as I take affirmation to have been used in the discussion just now, that kind of affirmation has to encompass the negative, has to encompass uh, things that we disagree with and things that hurt us and, and, and so on. I absolutely agree that um, if we come at this through language, that, that we do live in a culture in which the use of language in a kind of deconstructive, undermining, critical way is 
um, not only prevalent, but reflexive almost, uh, habitual. And many times that critical function is linked to ideology, uh, is linked to hardened positions on certain aspects of the world. But I'd like to suggest that that use of language, the ideological or the stubbornly critical, negatively critical use of language, really, it shorts the stock of the world, right? It does precisely as what was suggested earlier, which is to allow us to say, and often without realizing it, to shortcut to the political meaning or the, what it might be, the racialized meaning or the whatever whatever meaning is supposed to be in a situation. And I think that absolutely does miss the depth. And it's the depth that I'd like to, mm. to really focus on. So you mentioned, I think, at the beginning, that we often fall into traps of criticism. I think that's true. I think I would like to use the same idea of falling into something, but I would I would like us to take our our steer from poetry, which I think is probably the most living use of language, and actually say, I, I think we need to fall into the well of the world in which there is silence and precisely thereby avoid, ideally, falling into the trap of a much shallower use uh, of language, which would be the, the reflexively critical or the use of language and criticism in the service of some ideology or whatever it may be. So, funnily enough... Sorry, is that what you mean by worship, though, Jamie? No. The difference between praise and worship is that worship is a, is a braver thing, you know? It's, it's a recognition of something that, is, that was here before us and, and will outlast us and that we are uh, lucky to participate in. And it's also a submission of oneself. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think so often the language of criticism, the language, whether it's tied to ideology or, or, or agenda or whatever it is, that language is in, as I think was mentioned before, is in service of ego, is in, is in service of self, whether that's consciously done or not. And that is a shame because in shoring up the self, we cover over if you like, that which is fundamentally porous, mm. that which is, which is to say ourselves. And we need to be irrigated by the world in that well of attentiveness. But I think there, I mean, there are two sides to this. Mm. One is our propensity, I think, to use language as a tool to get what we want. Absolutely. Language becomes pure means. Yes. And I think one of the things that that's done is it's not just impoverished our use of language, so mm -hmm. we've become far more, I think, superficial, far more mm. blunt, mm -hmm. far more utilitarian yes. in our language, and also far less concerned. I don't know if you agree with this, Willie, but I mean, we, we become both far more conformist in the kind of language that we use. I always mm. see particular forms of non-grammatical communication just spring up everywhere because everyone's using it. We become far more conformist in the language that we use. But also, we, we tend not to care as much because language is a tool. We tend mm. not to care about the niceties of it. Sure. And because we use language that way, I'm speaking generally, kind of culturally, mm. and you might want to take this up, Willie, we also suspect that others are using language the same way too, which means they're using language in a kind of utilitarian, fairly cynical, to get what they want. So language doesn't invite, in the way that we speak to one another, language doesn't invite a suspicion of depth mm. or suspicion that there's something here to be known. Mm. There's something here to be trusted. Mm. There's something here to be interrogated further. Rather, there's something here to be suspected. Mm. But, but this is where I, yeah, I just don't know that language is the right way into it. There's something to be suspected because that's what we do. Yes, that's right. That's like, I don't, I don't think it's that if we had better ways of talking about our affirmation or, or indeed our worship, that suddenly there would be a lot more of it. I think it's that at a cultural level, we've lost that capacity mm. and therefore there's no language for it because we have no need for that language. The the language that we do need is the language of critique. And so that is in abundance and it exists in pithy phrases and all sorts of things. And we see it in politics and at the party level and, and at the social level. But it's that the substance of affirmation isn't there. So I think about the way this gets cast in politics, right? If I could be really crude, I would, but to put it crudely, I would say 
progressive politics has become a politics built on negation and deconstruction. So if it affirms anything, it affirms non-things, right? So non-discrimination or, or something like that. You could argue it affirms equality, but I think that becomes a far more complicated thing to argue because you end up in arguments about kinds of equality. and mm. justice, becomes, equality. justice becomes similarly complicated, yeah. Yeah. I think its claims are clearest and strongest when it's arguing against something that it calls an injustice rather than for what matters inherently in life. Like if you, if you took most progressive arguments and then said, okay, but what's this all in the service of? I mean, what's the point of it all? So I get you don't like discrimination or whatever, but what is it that life's about? There wouldn't really be an answer. Mm. And I say this with some confidence because I've had that conversation a lot in my personal life with people who would regard themselves as progressive, and there isn't really one. Partly because that's the nature of the liberalism they've inherited, which is to say, well, we don't declare what matters. We leave that for individuals to determine for themselves, mm. which means at a cultural level, you become incapable of saying X matters, right? But what that's left is a conservative politics that can own the field of meaning and own the field of declaring what matters, and so does so in a debauched way. The Trump phenomenon, and I apologize for bringing this up because everything ends up defaulting to Trump. It's like the new Godwin's law, isn't it? But the Trump phenomenon is powerful, because it's affirming something. Mm-hmm. And as we go on and on more through it, it seems it's affirming mostly him. But at the beginning of it all, like the crass elements of it, the build a wall elements of it, etc., it's tapping into something that's about like affirming the nation, affirming a sense that the nation matters. Mm-hmm. Right? Which is something that progressives have found it very difficult to say. Until really, I, that's what, one of the things I think is interesting about Anthony Albanese. I think he positions himself slightly differently. But, but in the main, that's just sounded like an argument that progressives don't really want to make because it's retrograde. It's, you know, last refuge of the scoundrel sort of stuff. And, and so I think in some ways, the debauched affirmations, you might even want to call it worship. I don't know, Jamie. <laughs> the, mm. the debauched versions of this that you see on the conservative side of politics are the evidence of what's missing elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, I think worship is such a you know, loaded word. And I, and I think I would, you know, I would position worship as perhaps one of the most fundamental or kind of root aspects of what I'm talking about. But, I mean, I think there's there's been such a desiccation in culture over the last hundred years or so of straightforwardly religious aspects of existence, um, almost to the point now where it's, it's almost uh, countercultural to express religious sentiments because it's it's become so eradicated from uh, public discourse, you know, in its straightforward established religious forms. Now, I'm I'm not arguing at all personally for any particular religious uh, position, but the language of religion, which ties to a certain kind of sentiment, a certain deportment, if you like, of soul, using <laughs> using the same language, I think that. That is a universal human need. Um, we are worshipping, craving animals. And I think that unmet need is perhaps one of the most important aspects that is underlying a lot of this, which is that, yes, it, it very often is expressed in a, as you say, in a debauched manner or in a manner that is that is crafted for a certain kind of worldview or a certain kind of appeal, uh, such as with the Trump phenomenon. But we see this in other aspects where the enormous popularity of certain figures who are in uh, the digital space, who are precisely offering a, in many cases, a very traditional set of uh, values, uh, often religiously based values. Um, And these people are tremendously popular uh, and also tremendously pilloried at the same time. And I think... Yeah, so like take the Andrew Tate phenomenon. Yeah, um, Andrew Tate, uh, people like Jordan Peterson, um, other people like that. There is... Now, I'm not saying that, certainly not with Andrew Tate or or even with Jordan Peterson, that these are individuals that are, you know, I'm, I'm not promoting them by any means, but I think they are markers of something that is that is perennial, that is essential to what 
we live to be human. And they, they really point to, as I say, a, a lack in modern culture where it is it is almost almost embarrassing or it's considered embarrassing or backward to go to church or to be um, openly spiritually inclined, whatever that might be. Let me, but you know what's fascinating mm, about those figures, though, Jamie? Mm, I don't know. No, I haven't listened to enough Jordan Peterson to comment or really Andrew Tate for that matter. But my, my impression is certainly in the latter example, what you describe is correct but it tends to be half the equation. Mm. So what you get with religious language, mm. and not just religious language, I, like, I, I'm going to insist on this point that the language follows from the belief. It yes. follows from the thing that it's attached to, right? Yeah. It's, it's describing something real and therefore the language flows from it, right? That's the, that's the idea. Mm. It, that comes with all sorts of other virtues that pull very much in the opposite direction, right? To do with restraint, to do with humility, and mm. so on and so forth. Whereas very often with these sorts of figures, what you see is this sort of celebration of overt material mm. excess wealth and so on and so forth. So it actually misses the difficult dimensions of religion. <laughs> I yeah. yeah. It misses the sort of, in a way, the most spiritually nourishing elements, and mm. it collapses back into an egotistical form. Now, yes. that is why I describe these things as, in the end, debauched. It's not mm. that they're, they're reaching for what they're reaching for has no truth in it. Mm. It's that we don't, in our culture, any longer seem to have the tools mm-hmm. to reach for anything that might be real or that we want to affirm mm. without it tipping over into something that we regard or that at least progressives would regard as really ugly and retrograde. At I, the same time, mm, as progressives don't really want to reach for it in the first place. I don't Scott, know. I don't know. Yeah, look, I think the two of you are onto something, but I think there's something, and, and this goes back to other disagreements we've had. It's probably a little bit of a dispositional thing here too. But I think one of the reasons that we have seen, and here I think I want to speak up in favor of liberalism, as surprising as this, as this might be, I think one of the things that we've seen is an unpreparedness to sacrifice, if if I can think in terms of a kind of axial relationship, to sacrifice the moral demands that are incumbent upon us through a full engagement with the moral reality of another person, the specificity of another person. Mm. The unwillingness to sacrifice the fullness of that engagement in the interests of a kind of vertical demand of assent or worship or obedience. In other words, in other words, uh, the condemnation of a person or a people on the basis of some kind of religious affirmation. One of the ways that we honor God is by calling this group sinners, for instance, for instance. One of the things you often rather find— Rather than ourselves. Rather than ourselves. One of the things that you find, for instance, in the kind of quasi-religious pseudo-authoritarian discourse of some of the figures that we've mentioned mm. is this form of quasi-religious discourse gives us the ability to reduce human beings to something like avatars, to caricatures, mm. to stand-ins, mm. things that can be identified, things that can be dismissed yep. in toto. Mm. And I think one of the things that liberalism has going for it in its refusal of vertical forms of assent or obeisance Mm -hmm. is meant to be a kind of radical moral exposure Mm. to the moral reality of another person. So you think about John Rawls's entire chapter on the moral sentiments. Mm. Yes, you've got the rules. Yes, you've got the various ways in which we honor the claim of justice. Mm. Yes, we have the various ways in which we try to make our lives and our and rein in our aspirations in the interests mm. of a kind of total theory of justice. But you also have the total exposure of one person's life to the life of another Mm. through these bonds Mm. of mutually bearing up one another's burdens, Mm. of being exposed to the aspirations of another person whose Mm. life has started off so radically impoverished Mm. or in nowhere near the kind of situation that your own is. Or we pursue our individual interests. Or we pursue... So the, the point here is I think one of the ways, one of the reasons that religion has gotten quite a bad name Mm. is because of a preparedness Mm. over the course of the last century to sacrifice the proximate, the immediate, horizontal demands of other human beings. And for us to then accommodate our lives, our aspirations, and our theories of the good, our ideas of what is praiseworthy, Mm. to the reality of their lives, Mm. rather than making lives conform to something that pre-exists those relationships, which most religions would claim. I mean, I would say, sorry, if I could just come in. I I would agree with that, but I think there is always, just to take, for example, 
Christianity, which is the religion I'm, I'm most uh, conversant with. I would say that that's a very incisive and fair diagnosis of certain expressions of religion, in- institutionalized religion. But I would, I would say that there is always, again, just to take Christianity as one example, there is always within that faith the opposite tendency and precisely that horizontal tendency, which I would say probably perennially has to be dug back out of the kind of ossification of of the system. And one of the best examples that I can think of is the term used in the story of the Good Samaritan, where there is a feeling in, uh, I forget the Greek term for the moment, but it's it means literally guts or inside. Uh, and it's usually translated to something like compassion, mm-hmm. something like... I actually know the Greek term, but yeah. uh, it's blankthoi. Yes, exactly. That's, that's the word. Uh, I can never pronounce it. But that term, and that term is used of Christ when he has compassion on the multitudes who follow him, when he has compassion on the widow of Nain. Um, it's a visceral moral exposure. It's absolutely that. Absolutely that. And I would say that it's that courage that requires something of us i think you know so many of the things that we've been talking about about you know yoked to ideology criticism or uh, a sense of uh, worship or reverence or whatever it may be in a debauched form all of these things are so much easier and so much less scary they they ask of us so much less than simply dwelling with a person, you know, as suffering flesh to suffering flesh, which is precisely that which you see, for example, in in that example in the New Testament. Uh, it's, for example, I think why, you know, the clergy were dispersed through the the slums, you know, so often throughout the history of the church, you know, that, that you suffered along with the people, that there was this kind of community of suffering nerve that was absolutely understood as the basis for example, of the passion, you know. Uh, so underneath all of this, underneath the reflex to criticism, the kind of pressure of speech in modern life where we almost feel obliged to say things, I mean, I would say in almost all situations, the proper response, at least initially, is, is not to say anything, mm-hmm. you know. But we, we almost feel obliged because we have these various platforms and various media that allow us to talk as if most of us have anything worth saying. Yeah. And deconstruction is always the easiest thing to say. Yes, exactly. It, Close, it closes the book. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We're out of time, Jamie. We could keep going. Yes, <laughs> we can construct no more. Uh, Jamie Parr is a philosopher and writer. His book, Nietzsche and Pascal, Transfiguration, Despair and the Problem of Existence, is coming out via Bloomsbury soon. Uh, so keep an eye out for that. In the meantime, you're stuck with him on the minefield. He was our guest today. And uh, we'll be back next week with a different guest. We'll see you soon. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.